Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast, a program that explores the world of rotary and fixed-wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army helicopter pilot, Brian Harris. Hey everybody, happy holidays. Welcome back to the show. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving, got to spend some time with family and friends, and that you have a good Christmas break here coming up soon. As I said previously, we were just kind of uh, taking a slower pace this season with the show, uh, just a little bit harder for me with all the things that I got going on right now to, to track down people and do all the interviews. Plus, I'm kind of having some internet issues with the uh, past couple of interviews I've had here, so um kind of waiting to get back home to to maybe get back into it a little bit a little bit faster. Uh, things are going well here though. I uh, just completed my multi-engine check ride uh right before Thanksgiving and already got a job offer from an airline and uh, got a couple other interviews coming up here in the uh coming weeks. So it's pretty exciting stuff. And I uh, should be finishing up here I hopefully mid January and uh get home for good and finish up all that retirement paperwork. So anyhow, we'll get right into it. I hope you guys enjoy the show. Dimitri Nicholson flew the AH-1 Cobra and OH-58 Delta Kiowa Warriors in the U.S. Army, and he joins us here today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. I appreciate you coming on, and uh, you are the author of a new book. uh, I guess it's relatively new, Thugs of Missoula. Yes. Yeah. Published it in the end of June. Okay. Great. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go, but first, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into aviation. Well... I didn't grow up really in a military family. I grew up in Maryland. Um, my dad was drafted in the Korean War. For the Korean War, I didn't go to the Korean War, but um, that's like the, the most military I had in my family. But he uh, was a private pilot. His friends were private pilots. Um, kind of got into enjoying aviation. Some of his friends that were private pilots, one guy was a a P-51 Mustang pilot in the Korean War. Um, another guy was a uh, flew Cobras in the Maryland National Guard. So hmm. kind of grew up around that aviation experience. Um, Military-wise, I always enjoyed military history as a kid, watching back when I was a kid. We didn't really have cable, but watching uh, all those PBS shows, uh, Guadalcanal Diary, Anything on World War II or Vietnam, so aviation in those areas as well. Um, I ended up uh, was a big soccer player, so when I got to high school, I had long hair and wanted to just be a soccer player and then got uh, recruited to play soccer at West Point, and I realized, well, it's free and it's the military, so I went there. Um, Probably sometime in the 70s, 80s, I don't know, I was watching movies and saw Cobras in the cab in Vietnam, the air cab. So I just really kind of liked the air cab. And that was my goal when I was at West Point to graduate and to be in the cab. Luckily, when I went to flight school, I was oddly too short or my sitting height was too tall for the OH-58 Alpha Charlie. <laughs> and uh, 
there were two Cobras in my class. One guy was in the National Guard. He had to get Cobras, and I was the other one. So luckily I got to fly Cobras coming out of flight school, and my goal was to get to a CAD unit. Um, luckily, I got into the third ACR down at Fort Bliss. Um, spent two years at Fort Bliss as a platoon, gun platoon leader in an air cav troop, and then moved with that regiment when it moved to Fort Carson, Colorado, and spent two years in his an S4 and assistant S3, but um, I still got to fly Cobras up there because we were transitioning from uh, the attack troops were transitioning out of Cobras into Apaches. So there was a shortage of Cobra pilots. So I got to keep flying as a staff aviator. Um, But yeah, I, I I was telling you earlier, I almost went Apaches, uh, had an Apache in flight school, but they gave it to another guy who had, I was still an instrument, so they gave it to a guy who graduated that phase two of OBC. So I kind of find it for me it was lucky because uh, I really enjoyed my time in the Cobra. Um, when I went to the advanced course, of course, Cobras were getting phased out, um, and we had a choice of aircraft, so I went OH-58D, which ironically at that time I was sitting height was perfect for it. So. <laughs> Yeah, I, I laugh about the sitting height because I had the same issue where, uh, first of all, I was almost uh, not able not able to join aviation because they said my sitting height was too too much. I think I think the max sitting height is 101 centimeters, and I was 102, and they and they were doing my flight physical and they said, "Oh, you're disqualified." And I, was, and I asked them why, and they told me, and I said, "Do it again." And I just scrunched myself down as much as I could. That's and funny. When I went through fl- <laughs> when I went through flight school. Um, that was the other concern is, oh, you can't fly 58s because it's 95 centimeter sitting height. And then, because I, I really wanted to fly Kiowas and uh, they called out to Hanchi and asked and they said, no, no, that's the Alpha Chuck. The Delta's got more headspace. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, I can I can share your your feelings. And then you talked about the ACR for, for listeners, the, the Armored Cavalry Regiments of old, which uh, I think for a lot of people is kind of the the uh, the heyday of, of aviation and combined arms because you had a, a brigade size element really a little bit larger if you look at it, but you had tanks and infantry guys and helicopters all kind of mixed together in the same unit. And it's, it's a pretty cool design. Yeah, it was a, it was a great unit, um, a great unit for a Lieutenant to cut his teeth in, um, especially for cavalry. Cause obviously it's a cavalry regiment. Everything is, is free to core the mission, you know, it's like a self-contained unit designed to go out and find and fix the enemy. But yeah, you had every, combat arms, combat support within the regiment. And I know most aviators don't think of themselves as just aviators. I think of, you know, maneuver, you think of yourself as a cav guy. So you kind of get engraved, ingrained in that whole maneuver mindset and how to use all the different assets on the battlefield. So it was, it was really fun. Um, some great commanders that came out of there, not just aviation that I got to work with as a young guy or observe them. Mm-hmm. Um, Major General Abrams, then Major Abrams, Colonel Cohn, who's retired. I think he's mm-hmm. I think he passed away yeah, recently. Yeah. Um, General Funk was Major Funk. Um, so my CAV troop, the way we did it back then, was CAV troops were assigned to ground CAV squadrons, and I had 1st Squadron, which at the time had Colonel Cohn and Major Abrams, the most aggressive team I've ever worked with. I also got to work with Major Funk for a period. So, yeah, it was very fun. Learned a lot um, and great warrant officers. There were some warrant officers that were there from Desert Storm. Um, 
and they they taught me a lot. So it was it was a great experience. Yeah, yeah, that was a unit. I started my career out as an armor guy, and uh, that's where I wanted to go the whole time was third third ACR. And then when I did get in aviation, that's around the time that they got rid of that design and they went to just calling CRs and yeah. just had tanks. And now I think they have strikers. So. Yeah, we um when I worked at Fort Benning, General McMaster was the the CG of Benning, and of course he had commanded third C, uh, ACR. Yep. And um that always came up as a as a thing at you know the at the beer calls in the afternoon. Hey sir, when are we bring in the ACR back? And he's like, yeah, I wish, you know. But yeah, what a great design. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, and that's one reason uh, I ended up at Four Six Cav too, because Four Six Cav used to be Four Squadron Second ACR at Polk. So. They, I don't know if it was somewhere roughly around early 2000s, maybe before 9-11, they were going to create uh, independent air cav squadrons for all the cores. Uh, 4-6 was one of them for I-Corps. And it was the same, basically, organizational structure as an ACR air cav squadron. We were supposed to get a two troop of Apaches, um, but we lost so many Apaches between... Afghanistan, Iraq, up to that point when we moved in 2005, 2006 to Fort Lewis, that they couldn't feel us Apaches because they had to go to theater. So we ended up just right. being a three-year CAF troops, uh, a UH-60 assault troop, but we still had the AVIM, the intermediate maintenance, the unit maintenance. So it was probably the largest, just like an ACR air CAF squadron, they're, they're larger than your normal battalions. Yeah, for listeners, uh, just we're using a lot of terms here. A squadron uh, commanded by a lieutenant colonel, so you're going to have quite a few aircraft, quite a few individuals in the unit, and then a troop is a, a company size element. So typically around eight to ten aircraft, kind of depending on on what you've got. So about three, three or four troops make up a squadron. Just kind of depends on the on the design, and then like you said, the the maintenance units and everything that kind of goes into it. So a squadron is a self-contained organization. Um, Okay, well, so what was it like flying Cobras? I mean, let's talk a little bit about that. I uh, I really enjoyed it. There were many times I was uh, the high bird in Iraq, Mosul, flying at about 1,000 feet, wishing I was in a Cobra with a 20-millimeter cannon. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, uh, what model of Cobras did you fly? I just <clears throat> flew the F model. So it was the latest model the Army had, and that's what it's fully – F stood for fully modernized. Mm-hmm. Um, the Cobras I had, just like a lot of the aircraft that you and I flew, were all Vietnam vintage. I could look through the historical maintenance files of my Cobras, and it would say 1968 shot in, you know, tail over whatever province. Um, and then they just redid them over time, updating the models. But, yeah, it was the F model, so I had 20-millimeter gun. Uh, I could carry all rockets. It had tow missiles. Um, I had, you know, late 70s, 80s technology as far as sight. We had a sight a TSU, and I know people are going to kill me if I butcher the names, but I think it's a telescopic sight unit. Um, what I enjoyed, though, is I think, and now that you're an Apache guy, I think the Cobra was an outstanding scout aircraft. We flew in teams, so it was usually a OH-58 Alpha Charlie was the lead scout, was the scout. And I was his gun and we followed him around to protect the scout in case he got shot at. But we were scouting ourselves because um, it's just kind of like you get two 
Kiowa Warriors, you both are scouting, but the way you sit tandem in that cockpit with that view all the way around you, I mean, I think the my old scout friends who flew off at Charlie's wouldn't probably agree with me, but we were pretty good scouts as well. Um, we kind of prided ourselves as gun guys in a scout troop to be better scouts than that we could provide more. But um, the Cobra itself, a lot, a lot like single engine aircraft, was probably underpowered, um, different conditions. Fort Bliss wasn't too bad. It was hot. So that kind of affected the Cobra. Fort Carson, Colorado's altitude had a, especially in the summer, had a really big impact on the Cobra. Um, no, but I enjoyed flying it. Um, I liked the little rivalry at the time with the scouts that we used to have, but we made great teams. And we tried that kind of pink team in Iraq with 58 uh, Kiowa Warriors and Apaches, but it didn't work as well. And I think that's more because of the the uh, increase of technology and the Apache itself. Um, yeah, We could talk more about it later, but the Apaches that we had come up to Mosul were the ones with the new MTADs. And I think at the time... That was the only unit with MTADs that were fielding MTADs to the other Apaches, but their sight was so good. Like to follow us around like the old days didn't really make sense because they could see more than just trying to follow us and keep yeah. visual eyes on us. Well, and the difference too is, I mean, correct if I'm wrong, but the Cobra, there, there was no, you could look out the side and look down and see pretty much straight down. Whereas with the Apache, you've got those, uh, the EFABs, the avionics yeah. that kind of stick out. And, and I will say, you know, coming as, as a 58 guy moving to 64s, you know, you heard the same thing, probably the same things that you were hearing as a Cobra guy. You know, you can't scout as much. I honestly, I felt like I could see pretty good in the Apache. Um, so I think some of that is just, um, you know, it's just something you say about the other community, but I think, there was a lot of culture issues when it came to that because in your time, what you're talking about with the Cobras and the Kiowas, they, that was part and parcel of what they did. You guys worked together and it was, it was an everyday type thing. Whereas you didn't see that in the Kiowa warrior Apache communities, you know, they kind of did their own thing and really only kind of forced together in certain situations. We did pink teams too. And it wasn't our idea. You know, it was like the, the, the higher headquarters wanted us to do it to get more blade yeah. hours. And, uh, and we had the same experience. It just wasn't, it wasn't as good that the Apaches had a difficult time keeping track of us visually. We had a difficult time, uh, just kind of maneuvering in such a way that they could still support us, you know, cause they're faster, but we're a little bit more maneuvering. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it just, it just, it didn't work and it wasn't because neither side could do it. It was just neither side didn't practice it. You know, we, we yeah. never did it in training. We only did it in combat. So it's not a good time to learn new techniques. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And then, you know, there are different capability sets that didn't really yeah. match up. Yeah, you're limiting the Apache's ability because you're right with the MTADs. I mean, you can see next week, you know, and, and it's like, well, I can't I can't really use that because I'm stuck with this guy who can only see, you know, three kilometers down the road. Yeah. So, um, no, it's true. Um, okay. So you said you flew Cobras for four years. How many, roughly how many hours did you fly them? Um, I probably got around 500 hours in Cobras. Okay. Just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> yeah. That's true. No, it was, uh, it was a great aircraft. I, and I, to be honest, like, like I said, there was times at a thousand feet, I just had a 20, wish I had a 20 millimeter to move one way or the other. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Art- articulating guns are fun. Yep. Especially the way Mosul was, you know, we, 
Mm-hmm. We were restricted to staying within 15 minutes of Mosul. So basically your flight area was, you know, you just took off with maybe an hour's amount of fuel so you could um, max out the ammo load because you knew the FARP was only within 15 minutes. So could have probably had a fully loaded Cobra with less gas and a little bit more firepower. And that's the thing. There, there's really nothing within 15 minutes of, of Mosul anyway, so you, there's nowhere to go. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've we've talked about the uh, the OH-58 Delta on the show before, so we can kind of skip over talking about that aircraft as much as I love it. Um, but tell us a little bit more about your career. So you went to the career course, and that's when you transitioned over to the Kiowa. Where, where did you end up next? Yeah, so after that, I went through the Kiowa Warrior transition and went to 317 Cab at Fort Drum. Uh, short time as an operations officer, and then I was the Blackjack Troop Commander for about two years. Um, after that, I left there and went to Leavenworth to work at Battle Command Training Program. Hmm. Um, I did that for about three years. During that three years, um, deployed to OIF for the invasion of Iraq. So in January 2003, late January, deployed to Kuwait. And the team at BCTP, um, I don't know if people are aware, but we run warfighters and simulations for division commanders and corps commanders. And at the time, there was a wartime mission agreement between the um, TRADOC and FORCECOM that the cadre at BCTP would fill out core staff. So oh, okay. the officers, all the observer controllers from my team at BCTP, there's about 30 or 40 of us, went to 5th Corps, and we all were from different branches. So the armor OC would go off and was a core uh, deputy chops. I went off and was the future uh, a future operations officer at fifth Corps. So there for January through the invasion up to Baghdad was there for about six or seven months. And then we deployed back to Leavenworth so we could continue more warfighters. Um, after that command general staff college. And from there, that's where I ended up going to four, six cab at Fort Lewis um, four, six cab. Like I said earlier, was an independent calf squadron. We didn't have a boss really. Matter of fact, we spent about, Two of my four years there trying to figure out who our boss was. It was either I-Corps at a, some period of time. We had a National Guard Brigade that was stationed there at Fort Lewis as our mm-hmm. kind of higher headquarters. Um, they bantered about having us have a striker brigade as our brigade headquarters. Um, we didn't really have an aviation brigade other than that National Guard Brigade until we went to deploy to Iraq. Um, we kind of deployed off cycle, I think, because I know when we replaced uh, 117 Cav in Mosul, we fell under the 25th Infantry Division's Aviation Brigade for about four months, and then they rotated out, and then we spent the rest of our time with the 1st Infantry Division's Combat Aviation Brigade. Well, um, what happened was, um, I'm trying to remember back, Basically, because because I was in 117, we we showed up with 25th Cab. They I think they got extended, and 117 did not because they came over. I think we came over under like some National Guard units orders. 
Okay. Our parent brigade went to Afghanistan. So the 82nd Cab was in Afghanistan and we were in Iraq. Um, yeah, because I remember because I was home on convalescent leave from getting shot and they started talking about, well, we may end up getting extended for three months. And I was like, well, I'm going back, you know, like I, I can't I can't stay at home that long. Like that just kills me. Um, and then I found out that, yeah, for whatever reason, because we fell under some different orders. So, yeah, you fell in not so much off cycle as much as the unfortunately 25th cab just got stuck there a little bit longer. Yeah, that makes sense because you guys rotated out on the normal June and they went. Yep. I think they got the 15 months because they went into about October. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Mosul and what a, what a beautiful city it is. It is pretty. <laughs> it was pretty. <laughs> it was, yeah, I've pretty been there. <laughs> I haven't been there since. Yeah. Mosul, you know, when I try to explain to people who aren't in the military, it's hard to explain, you know, you can't intermix what you think of Afghanistan and Iraq. They're complete, totally different places. I mean, Iraq's, uh, I don't want to say colony, but old British part of the British empire for a brief period. Um, just a little background on Iraq. I mean, they had a great medical hospital system. A lot of the doctors were educated in Britain. Um, probably one of the best, this is all pre Saddam, but probably one of the best university systems in the Middle East. Um, yeah. So when you look at the different cities, I mean, for us, you know, it's probably not what we're used to, but Baghdad, Mosul, as some parts of the city look normal to me, of course, you had your bad or rundown parts. Um, but it was the second largest city in Iraq. I think at that time it was about 1.3 million people. Um, yeah. Mosul itself, I guess you could say it's at the tip of the northern end of the Sunni Triangle, I guess. Um, most of the... A lot of the people that lived in Mosul were um, retired officers from Saddam's army. They were Sunnis. Um, they were either from the military or they were in the intelligence apparatus and they just retired. Mosul itself strategically kind of sits on a crossroads from ancient time to present um, between east and west there in the Middle East. Um, you got the Tigris River. So you got a lot of lines of communication roads coming in and out, going north to Turkey, south down to southern Iraq, west into Syria, um, east into Iran, into the Orient. So a lot of history there. I know um, in the book I mentioned, you know, at least even in the Bible, there's a lot of biblical history there. Um, there was Noah was sit out of the whale there in Mosul or Nineveh. I even mentioned there's a mosque, and you probably remember the Noah's Mosque. Um, yeah. I don't think a lot of us would forget it because it was a mosque that had all the string lights up the stairs. Yeah, the, the Jonah's mosque. mosque, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jo- I'm sorry, Jonah's Mosque, not Noah's Mosque. But there was a mosque that looked like Noah's Ark. There was, yep. Yeah. So it's a, it's a really <clears throat> historical place, both you know, uh, re- religiously, because Obviously, it's Islam, but you did have a Christian population there. Generally, there are Chaldean Catholics. I don't know what the percentage was, probably 2%. Um, I know Jewish people had lived there, and there might have been a population. <clears throat> but then present day, you had a mixture of Sunnis and Kurds. I know most of the city was Sunni, but then you get to the east side of the river, a heavy Kurdish, Kurdish population. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so there was like a mixture of things happening. I know you experienced it because it was pretty violent when 117 was there. Um, but a mixture of the Sunnis insurgencies kind of keep control of the city and then the Kurds who wanted control because of, you know, the possibility of having a Kurdistan that would come down and maybe cover parts of Mosul. Yeah. I, you know, I, I jokingly say about it not being pretty. I, I did like it. I mean, I thought it was, um, it's just interesting. Well, I, I can't describe it to people who haven't seen it because it's not what you think of when you think of the Middle East, um, both in good ways and bad ways. There's certain things of it that you're just like, wow, I can't believe people live like this. And then there's other things you're like, wow, okay, people live like this. This is interesting. Yeah. Um, you would see some wild things, you know, like I remember seeing like somebody's boat on top of a house. You know what we could never figure out hmm. is how they got all those cars Junk cars on the roofs of second-story buildings. <laughs> yeah, the, the yeah. I think somebody had a cow on top of a building one time. Yeah, it's just just weird stuff. And uh, the boats we thought were just because uh, the smart ones were planning for that Mosul Dam to burst. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there were, like you said, some beautiful mosques, and I say were because again, I, I was there a few years ago, and most of those are gone, unfortunately. Um, um, I'm a, yeah. I'm a big history guy, so you know I'm, I'm romantic about anything that's old. But like you said, like just different parts of it. old town to me was mm. um, pretty cool. I used to joke with some of the other pilots that man, I wish I wish I'm like that Vietnam vet from 40 years that can go back in 40 years and just walk through the streets because some of it was yeah. pretty neat. And an old town, I enjoyed. I didn't enjoy doing uh, missions there at night because the ground guys would tell you the target building and they'd give you like the map with all the building numbers. And we could never figure out what building 10 was because they were all so close together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, this is, it was just different. You fly around the city, it would change. And like you said, I would tell people back home. Sometimes I felt like I was flying over some of the architecture looked Southwesty, you know, El Paso or Mm -hmm. San Diego, just how they built the buildings. But and you always knew where the um, the bad guys were because they had the really nice houses. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of nice houses up on the uh, on the north side. Yeah, on the uh, uh, west side, or I'm sorry, east side of the river. <laughs> yeah, you know, the palaces and stuff. Yeah, it was it was unique to watch daily life go on because there were uh, like little theme parks. Do you remember the theme parks up there against the Tigris River? Yeah, uh, still there. People out playing soccer. Um, and then, you know, just the other thing, I mean, I, I think everyone had a satellite dish. I mean, you could go out in the middle of the desert to a farmer out there and they have a satellite dish. Yeah, that's one thing I certainly remember about flying around Missoula is, is watching out for all the TV antennas and satellite dishes when you're yeah. down low. Um, but, yeah, all those amusement parks and stuff on the river still there. I remember there's one spot, and I went and looked back at it a couple you know, a couple of years ago. It was kind of on the north end of the river by the um, the bridge up north. I can't remember which bridge that was. Uh, I think it was Tampa, Route Tampa yeah. Bridge. But there was like, a, like a, um, a coffee place like right there on the river. And I just remember like 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon when the sun is setting, I was just, I would fly over and I was like, man, I would love to be down there. Like it just looks so relaxing and peaceful. It's right there on the river. You know, and you just kind of forget about all the, you know, the jerks running around with machine guns and stuff. You're just yeah. kind of, it's like, wow, you're seeing real life. And 
I, I never got that experience really in Afghanistan, but, but Iraq, you could definitely see, cause it was a, a more modern culture than, than what you would see in Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, I like, think so. There's, there's a lot of background there. I mean, it, it just unfortunately had some a bad luck of, of leadership there for a long time that degraded it. But had that not happened, I think it'd be a very different country. But, um, but you could see a lot of that in the, the architecture and just the, the culture that was going on underneath. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about, I mean, I know, but for the listeners, what, I mean, what was a day in the life? You guys showed up, you relieved us. What, what was an average day in the life of a Kiowa pilot in uh, Missoula in, in 2007? <clears throat> well, so we showed up, I have to say on here, I mentioned it in my book, 117 Cav was a great, great unit. Um, I think both wars have been going on for so long at that point. I shouldn't say so long, but several years have gone by a lot of rips. So I think a lot of units were really into, they were invested in their past 12 months and they really wanted the unit replacing them to do well. There wasn't really much rivalry, but I would say there was no better unit to to replace than 117 Cav. Um, so we learned a lot from them and we just kind of picked up the same model. We, sh- we had uh, one Air Cav troop, so we had about, we actually took 10 Kiowa warriors instead of eight. A normal troop has eight. We had 10. Um, we had one troop there in Mosul, just like just the model of 117 cab. We had one troop in Telafar, which was out to the west. Um, and then we had one troop down at Camp Spiker, which is... Uh, Tikrit, I think. Yeah, Tikrit. Um, and then we had our own Blackhawk troop. They were out in Telafar. We had both sets of maintenance, the unit maintenance, which we really kept there in Mosul, and intermediate maintenance, which is the next higher level we had out in Telafar. They did all the higher level maintenance. And then, you know, you did some task forcing to move soldiers and people around. And we also had a Blackhawk platoon out in Kirkuk. So we were kind of spread out. I tell people's area doing operations, the area the size of New Jersey. Um, the unit down at Spiker was attached to 182 attack, um, but everyone else belonged to us up, up north. Um, and we just really had a 24-hour schedule. You had what we called Mosul shifts. So you had Mosul 1, which was the first shift, <clears throat> and depending on sunrise, sunset, but usually started off at somewhere around 6 or 7 in the morning and flew to about 11. Then we had what was the Mosul 2 shift. They flew from mid-morning to late afternoon. Then you had a Mosul 3, which flew that late afternoon, a little bit past sunset. And then we had a shift called the Mosul 4, which went sometimes uh, somewhere around 10 at night until sunrise. Um, That's how we started. The thug pilots would rotate through the different shifts, um, one to avoid complacency, and two, just to kind of um, get them a different view of the city because the enemy was different. The city was different at the different times. The probably most engaged, the most violent shift was the M2. And we ended up calling them the Jihad shift. They're the ones that were most of the troops in contact. Uh, probably the one where the aircraft got hit the most, where they were engaging the most. Um, it's probably the crazy time. And that was, you know, somewhere from 10 in the morning up until about 5 in the evening. The M1 ship that came on first thing in the morning generally was kind of quiet, but then things would pick up near the end of their shift. So a lot of times they would get into action 
it'd be at the end of their window, and, and that's a flight time window because I don't want to bore people with all the combinations, but if you're flying during the day, generally you can fly eight hours unless your commander approves extra hours. If you're flying nighttime in the day, generally you're capped at six hours. So they would get into action and have to kind of do a battle handoff to the M2 shift. The M3 shift that flew in the late afternoons, evenings was what we call our hunter-killer shift. We found through our own reconnaissance and through intelligence reports and just patterns of what we were seeing that IED emplacers generally went out in the evenings, somewhere around 5 until whenever they finished their work. Um, and they would go out and do hunter-killer, kind of sit outside the city looking in with the sites. We teamed up with unmanned aerial vehicles, and we just kind of parcel the city up and kind of know the known hot spots and look for them. And then the uh, M4 shift would come on, which I joke about in my book because it was a joke, and I don't know if it was the same with 117, but a lot of the line pilots hated the M4 because it was could be boring. Um, that's when all the convoys were moving. And I'm talking, there was always two convoys a night of 100-plus trucks, one coming north, one going south. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of what we called that convoy. It had a name. Uh, yeah, I can't think of the names. Um, Fox, Fox Fuel Convoy is what we were always briefed. Oh, yeah. And I remember we would ask, like, like, what does that mean? Like, is that really what it's called? And so one day we were actually covering these guys and we called them and we're like, hey, what do you guys call this convoy? <laughs> and they were like, what, what do you mean? And we're like, well, like, like, what do you call it? Do you have a name? And they're like, well, it's a convoy. We're like, no, no, I know it's a convoy, but what do you, do you have a name? Like, we couldn't figure out where that, where that had come from. But yeah, that was the one that was always running up to Turkey and back. And Yeah, they were, they were, fun. Um, they were fun because we just knew it was call signs. I think one was Hat Trick. And I can't remember the other one. We just would get the mission hat trick convoy or whatever. Um, but they were generally reservists or National Guard, not all of them. Um, they were either MPs or maybe a transportation unit, and that was their task for the 12 months to escort these civilian convoys, which we felt bad for them because, you know, there's IEDs. I, mean, I think one night I had a convoy hit, and this convoy was going down Santa Fe towards Telefar. Or they were coming in from Telefar down Santa Fe, and I think they hit four IDs within like three kilometers. No one got hurt, but yeah. of course they had to stop and do their battle drills. Um, but the ones coming north and south, you know, trying to control all the third country nationals and these semi trucks. Oh, and yeah. um, Mosul had, and I'm pretty sure, I'm not aware, I'm pretty sure the other cities had curfews as well, but Mosul had a curfew, I think that started at 10 at night. And it ran till sunrise. So for the M4 shift, that was what people will equate to at the convoys. The longer we did convoys, we realized that we could stay in touch with them um, via radio. And we didn't have to really fly up and down the convoys because we could see them from long distances. Uh, I mean, you literally had 100 vehicles worth of lights. It looked like a snake weaving through the city. Um, But the other main thing. You were never far away anyway. Correct. Yeah, you're. Yeah. The other main mission that we did that was really what we almost did every night were the. We had different names for them. We called them task force missions or ranger missions. Um, yep. We supported the task force, which was a special forces. I should say special operations task force, generally of rangers. Um, they usually had a Delta Force team. 
Navy SEALs may be in and out, but mostly Rangers would go out and they would target high value targets almost every night. Um, yeah. I ended up flying the M4. I flew for the first three months, kind of rotated through M2 a little bit, did M3, but I was the squadron executive officer. Um, mm-hmm. I had a lot of meetings to go through during the day. Um, I had a great squadron commander, Lieutenant Colonel Jameson. He said, I want you to fly as much as you want, but you have to do all the meetings because he has to, he wanted to fly as much as he wanted. Yeah. <laughs> and then I realized like if I get on this M4 shift, I can do all my meetings in the afternoons and then fly as much as I wanted. So I ended up doing M4 for probably maybe 10 months out of the 15 months. And I, I loved it. it. It ended up becoming the staff aviator shift because of a lot of the staff aviators that worked in the S3 shop. Yeah. Some of the other troop commanders, uh, like the AVUM troop commander, HHT troop commander. So we all kind of migrated towards the M4 shift. Um, yeah. With some of the thug pilots as well. It was great shift is what you made of it. We generally maxed out on hours between all the Ranger missions, convoys. Um, third ACR would go out every night targeting their high-value targets. Um, and I always tell people, too, you know, with recon and security, during the height of the violence, a lot of security, a lot of troops in contact. Um, but we, working with our S2, made sure we were doing a lot of reconnaissance, confirming or denying when things were happening. So even if it got quiet in the middle of the night, we were going out reconning. And I know we could go 15 miles or 15 minutes out, but around Mosul were some hills and rough terrain, kind of deserty. I equated to like the eastern range of Colorado. If people, it's not like the desert you would think of Lawrence of Arabia. It was more like a (laughs) Colorado grassy high desert, but it had a lot of hills and ridges and wadis. Um, We would go out there and recon to make sure we were checking those insurgent support zones. And sometimes you, most of the time you didn't find anything, but sometimes we'd find V-bids that were being made, uh, Katusha rocket launchers, People ask all the time, you know, why couldn't we find more IEDs? It's kind of hard to explain to someone how IEDs are put into the ground. I mean, yeah. we tend to think as Americans that our enemy is dumb, but they're very smart and they do things very with ingenuity. So how they could heat up pavement, put a bomb in it and put pavement back over it. It's hard to find that stuff. Well, even just the sheer m- amount of trash on the side of the road in some yeah. places, you know, I mean, you just there's a million places to hide at something. So, yeah, yeah, I, I think it's pretty we rare were, to actually find an IED. Yeah, the ones we were catching in Mosul itself, they were putting in um, big IEDs. So hmm. propane tanks filled with HME, uh, homemade explosives. Yeah. Uh, any container that would hold uh, homemade explosives, they would have to dig and pickaxe into the road. And it took them like an hour. So that's why we were able to be successful against them because mm-hmm. they would be out in the road for a long time. We'd stand off about three kilometers just looking for that. And they didn't hear you. And the other thing, you know, the more you fly helicopters around a city, the less people pay attention to you. So if you're flying 24 hours a day, People on the ground are used to hearing helicopter noise, so yeah. a lot of times they didn't think that you were looking at them. Yeah, that, I think there's a difficulty in people understanding that that helicopter you see four miles away can be looking at you. 
yeah. you know, and, and, and you're right. After a while, you just become, you know, immune to the fact that there's helicopters flying around and you're just not thinking about it. Cause, cause, cause you're right. I mean, it's strange the times you will find somebody doing something bad and you're like, how, like, how stupid are you? I'm right here, but yeah. to them, you're not right there, you know? So, um, yeah. yeah also we would engage. There were several times when you would get, they would come out in groups of IED emplacers. Like the enemy learns, that was the thing we learned from 117 Cav as well. You have to stay on your toes. You know, you just can't assume the enemy's going to always do the same thing. They change, they change rapidly. I know we went from, uh, we started doing IND engagements with rockets and 50 Cal, but we would watch the, the video afterwards and realize how ridiculous it was chasing around. Yeah. Guys running, trying to hit him with rockets and 50 count. I know I mentioned in the book, for those people who aren't pilots or guys who shoot armed helicopters, when I say shooting rockets and 50 cows hard, 50 cows a lot easier. But once that rocket leaves the tubes, man, it's going where whatever little movement you put in a helicopter or whatever the wind's doing, that rocket's going to have a mind of its own. So sometimes you're chasing a guy around trying to hit him with rockets and it's kind of comical because it's like a old Bugs Bunny cor- or Wiley Coyote cartoon. <laughs> so we, um, yeah, it's comical in the sense that you're right. I mean, you're, you're trying to get that perfect shot, but you know, the, the non comical side is that's a city, you know, with a yeah, lot of yeah. people that have nothing to do with what's going on and you're yeah, just absolutely. throwing high explosives at them. And, um, yeah, I, we were a big fan. I was a big fan of, of having missiles there, but when we first showed up, the ground force commander, uh, the, the brigade that owned Missoula, they wanted us to fly rockets in 50, and it's because they just didn't understand the Hellfire. Yeah. And, um, in fact, I, I was a warrant officer at the time. I was a TAC ops guy, and I went over and gave them a brief about the Hellfire because I was like, look, this is not a 500-pound bomb. You know, this is a guided weapon, relatively small yield, um, but I can control where it goes. I can't control that rocket, like you said. As soon as I fire it, that's it. It's going where it's going, and you're gonna have to live with the consequences. Was that so, uh, Fourth Brigade, First Cav? No, it was um, the guys before them. It was a striker unit. I can't think. Oh, of okay, it. three two or they're out of Lewis. Yeah, four, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was three two. That's right. Yeah, yeah it's, it's ironic because I had to have the same discussion with Fourth, well, not really Fourth Brigade, um, two seven Cav, but those guys were great. I, that's another thing too. That unit was when we when we got there. It was uh, two seven cab was the ground unit. Um, Third ACR didn't come until December, so we were with two seven cab the ghosts for about five or six months. They were awesome. Um, I think I had to talk to the Third ACR about. You know, they would always ask for rockets or fifty cal instead. But sometime in November, we transitioned to Hellfires. Um, we had B Troop out in Telefar have a Hellfire engagement on IED emplacers in Santa Fe. So we learned from that, took lessons learned from that. Um, 182 down south in Spiker was using Hellfires from their Apaches. We're having great success. And if you remember Colonel Ball from 25th CAD, he would come up for his brigade command briefings and he would mention, you know, have you thought about transitioning to Hellfires? We went to Hellfires and it was great. Um, like you said, it's pinpoint, so we didn't have to worry about um, collateral damage. Um, the U.S. military is, is very cognizant of civilians on the battlefield, and I would say American soldiers in general 
don't relish hurting anyone but combatants. Um, and the Hellfire kind of cleared that up. But we would shoot Hellfires, and the, the downside of the Hellfire was designed to kill tanks, so it didn't always kill people. Um, right. We got that Kilo 2 Alpha with the frag donut ring, um, but the impact still went into the ground. It didn't really kind of spray out like normal artillery. So we would shoot Hellfires at kind of center of mass of the IDM placers, and you'd see them fall over. Some would die. Some probably had massive internal injuries, and then some would run away. But sometimes they would be placing in multiple IEDs, and they would think that the guy messed up and the IED went off. So <laughs> yeah. we would just stay three Ks away after the engagement sometimes, and then they'd come back, and then you'd just shoot again. Sometimes we would come in after we'd shoot the Hellfire and follow the Hellfire in and engage with rockets and 50 cal. So we would mix it up. Um, that enemy mixed it up, the insurgents. Uh, when they noticed we started using Hellfires, then they started putting lookouts. We noticed that they could, on some of our engagements early on, they would start running right when we launched a missile. So we realized they probably saw the missile launch or even heard it. We were assuming they saw the launch, the flash. So we started changing our tactics. The Hellfire shooter, the aircraft shooting the Hellfire would fly low and the the um, team member would, and the other aircraft would shoot the laser. Um, but they would adjust about every couple weeks, the ID and placers. So kept us on our toes. Um, but as a cat and mouse game, as a, that cat and mouse game is a scout that you enjoy. You know, how do you stay a, a step ahead of the enemy? Yeah, that's interesting um, about employment of the Hellfires. I remember watching video of the, uh, the Apaches down south from that rotation. And, and I remember one of the videos very clearly zoomed in on the guys that they were shooting at and they were all working on ID and they suddenly both look up right before the missile hits because they could hear it coming in, but they had no idea that it had been launched. And of course right. the Apache was probably shooting it, you know, four or five Ks or something. Um, but yeah, there's no, no concept that it's coming to them. Yeah. The rocket and a 50 cal, you're going to get close and they're going to know you're, you're kind of coming to them. And, and then as we talked about, there's no, yeah, I mean, they're going to go. Yeah. We had the battle drill down, pretty good, not just at that M3 shift, but the whole sensor shooter of, uh, we kind of like the dog pile on the enemy. So yeah. all the tactical operations centers in Mosul had TVs with all the video feeds coming in. So if they saw what they thought were ID and placers, we'd try to get an unmanned uh, UAV over top so we could pipe that in just to make sure that everyone was aware and there's clearance of fires were rapid. Um, yeah. And what we realized, too, is you don't really necessarily need to kill the insurgents. Um, mm -hmm. It's really just that, you know, kill one or two. Some of them go back and tell their insurgent buddies, hey, this isn't worth it. We saw the price of placing insurgents go up or placing IEDs go up. We saw uh, intelligence reports where IED placers refused to go out and put IEDs in because they knew they were going to get shot by helicopter. So there's other effects you get from those engagements that just, you know, you're just not going to kill your way out of it. You have to have other effects that create uh, the insurgents from stopping and doing it. And eventually by somewhere at the end of March, we were not just us, but with the ground units too, because they would send QRF out afterwards to do, uh, they'd go find the cell phones with the SIM cards. They'd find caches of yeah. ammo. So that ended up the day of the, Deep buried IED, which is the one I mentioned, is the really dangerous one. Um, 
when I was in Mosul, we had a deep buried IED in an intersection that you would know, Tampa Barracuda. A Bradley fighting vehicle ran over and it blew off the top and it killed the uh, troop commander. We had a deep buried IED in Palestine, which is on the west southwest side of Mosul, yeah. blow up a Humvee and killed all five Americans. So deep buried IEDs were no joke. Um, yeah. I'm not saying that the smaller IEDs could help hurt people, but they just really punctured tires. So by the time we got to March, they stopped putting in deep buried IEDs and just went to the, you know, throwing a pipe bomb out there or something, which was far more or less dangerous. Yeah, I seem to recall at least one of those deep buried going off and killing a striker crew when I was there, now that you mention it, up on the north side of town. But uh, did you guys have any problems with uh, aerial ambushes? You know, I know when we first got there, so there really was no disco threat that I could see. Um, I know, I think when 117 was there, didn't you have an aircraft get hit by a disco and they had to do a spur ride out or something like that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that a disco hit them. I, okay. I never heard that story. I was gone. But I, I think what had happened was whatever hit them had like severed a fuel line or something. And it was right there on the west side of the city. So they just put it down in the dirt and, uh, okay. and yeah, jumped on the other guy's aircraft. Yeah, we never had any big weapon threat like they had down south. And I know that was probably the biggest worry for most pilots because a Dishka, what is that, 12.7 millimeter? Right. Yeah, it's basically um, 50 cal. Yeah, and a KPV, which is probably roughly the same. They didn't really have that threat in Mosul. We kept getting reports as we were more and more successful that the insurgents were trying to build air defense battalions. Um, we not us, the ground guys captured many times dishkas. I know the Rangers on one mission found a dishka in the back, an operable dishka in the back of an insurgent van. Um, but we didn't really have that threat, but we did have the air ambush threats. And it happened a lot. Um, I know Colonel Jameson, um, Early on our tour, him and his crew were coming in to land at the end of the day. And by the time they got to the parking area, which we called Money Ramp, um, they saw artillery impacting the airfield. So they took off and they saw smoke coming out of Old Town. There's a market there in Old Town, which was really packed that day by the time they got there. But uh, Colonel Jameson flew with his team up towards Old Town and ended up flying into an ambush and they got hit probably by four different sides with uh, AK-47s, PKCs, and RPGs. And that's uh, lucky for Colonel Jameson because he actually got hit in the helmet. He had a round go right through his helmet. Hmm. Um, And then by the time they got there, though, it was so crowded. Like you were saying, you just can't shoot back when you just have thousands of civilians walking around. Um, There was other ambushes like that. I think we had one kind of what you were telling me about the dirt mound out there by Nineveh Major. There was a berm around it. And one time air crews flew by over the berm and an explosion went off. So we thought that might've been possibly a helicopter IED aimed at a helicopter. But most of the aerial threats we faced were anytime they shot indirect fires or used a V-bid, any kind of major sensational act that they tried. They wanted to kind of bring the helicopters in 
they wanted you to come in right on top so they could engage you. And they would yeah. do those triangular ambushes. But like I said, the most biggest size weapons were either AK-47 or PKC machine guns, but both are 7.62. And I'm not saying like, anything's deadly to the aircraft we fly, but I have to say after spending 15 months in there and seeing aircraft get shot up, I mean, whoever designed Lisa Kaiwa Warrior, um, that aircraft could take some punishment. I mean, guys would get hit in the blades and wouldn't even know it until they landed. Um, air rounds would go through the aircraft and a lot of times not hit anything. I, maybe we were lucky. Um, not hit anything major. They'd come back with bullet holes, um, but they're very sturdy, very sturdy aircraft. Yeah, when I got shot up, uh, <laughs> it was it was a 7.62s armor piercing rounds because I've got one of them in a jar. Um, yeah. the one the one that they pulled out of me but um i mean our aircraft got hit with 15 rounds and they found compressor blades in the combustion section of the engine we had five holes in the fuel cell um my chin bubble was blown out the bullet that hit me i was sitting in the left seat it actually went through the collective wow. um, and hit me uh there was a hole in the front of my windshield um let's see there was a few that had had damaged like the mast and, and things like that but you're right the aircraft kept flying, you know, um, they can take a pounding. I, th- I think it's that, you know, the magic bullet that he- severs the drive shaft or, yeah. you know, something like that. But I mean, even ours, it hit, um, it hit one of the radios. So it, it cut our radio out to our wingman. So we couldn't, we couldn't call them. And we thought they had been shot down cause they weren't answering. Um, but they called us on the tower free. Cause I'm sure you guys did the same thing. You know, everybody was up tower and you were just, yeah. you were just too close to the airfield not to be, um, but you're right. The, those aircraft could actually take quite a pounding. And I'd seen, you know, my wingman one time come back with the whole, whole top of his blade was ripped off from a bullet that had hit, you know, um, and he'd been flying like that for three hours. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah it's a lot of confidence to the pilots. I know that. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But we had certainly those ambushes happen where just like you said, it's, it's sort of natural reaction that if something happens, you're going to launch the QRF, you know, yeah. ground and air QRF is probably going to go out there. And, and they knew that there was, I was told, I don't know if maybe you guys inherited this problem or if it was solved. I was told that, uh, in Missoula, when I was there, that there was a team of, of insurgents who, who actually drove around with their cars full of machine guns looking for helicopters. Um, and that that was actually the guys that they thought had shot me and the special forces team that was there was actually like actively trying to find these guys. So I don't know if that was just a legend or, or what. Um, I mean, I haven't heard something like that specifically, but I do know that there were teams designed for that. I mean, um, yeah, we could tell when you would respond to a troop in troops in contact, if it was more of a opportunity for the insurgents to, to get a couple shots off, or if it was some kind of planned ambush to draw helicopters in. Mm. <clears throat> Cause after, uh, Jameson was ambushed, we went back and, did the typical, like, just don't go to the sounds of the guns, you know, be careful. <clears throat> but even if we, I know a VBID went off, they were trying to destroy a bridge for the longest time. I don't know which one, you know, there's what, five of them that go up the Tigris River. And they were trying to, insurgents were trying to destroy a bridge. I know they eventually destroyed what was called the Tampa Cloverleaf. Um, and the, oddly, the, the V-bit with the bodies was still under the, for the rest of the tour, they never fixed the cloverleaf. They, in good army fashion, bypassed it. 
So insurgents really didn't cause any problems. But I know the scout weapon team, when they responded to that VBID, they purposely stayed three Ks out and still got engaged. So hmm. um, whether the insurgents were smart and knew, you know, trying to stay ahead of their game, um, but there were a time when we would catch vehicles that had discas. The intelligence coming out in the early spring, late winter, like February, March timeframe was they were trying to set up these two units. So I, I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, there's a lot of intel that came out that anytime they tried to engage the ground forces, they were getting frustrated when the aircraft would show up. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, we would capture or the ground guys would capture, we call them mobile caches, you know, the cars with the trunk full of yeah. weapons. Um, I think that was their way of patrolling and looking for targets of opportunity. So Zul was split uh, by the Tigris, and uh, which side did you find more dangerous? Um, God, both sides had their own. I think it's more neighborhood. I know when we first showed up to Mosul, we were told not to fly over Saddam, which was a neighborhood up north. Mm -hmm. And I think I might get the story wrong, but is that where Matt Mattingly was shot at? Uh, No, he was shot over... um, on the far east side, not actually not far from where I was shot. Um, I don't remember if it had a, na- a name, but it was side, up north to the northeast of the Dremel. Yeah, it might have been north of the tool named streets, but yeah, so, right. um, yeah. yeah, we were told not to go in there unless it was a mission with a ground unit, and you can only fly overnight. Uh, Palestine down south, what I talked about earlier, yeah, in somewhere around February March became a bad place. A lot of them were street intersections, uh, Nissan, Azuzu, yeah. uh, Tampa Barracuda, which was route Tampa, which went all the way through Iraq and Barracuda that went kind of east-west. And those were f- both four-lane roads. And Tampa Barracuda was an intersection of empty, like, buildings. And it's when we got there, matter of fact, I was doing my second – Left seat, right seat ride with the Roughnecks from 117. I got, we got engaged there at Tampa Barracuda. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike Leone was telling us uh, there was an engagement earlier that day and wanted to take me up there during my left seat, right seat ride. And he had this theory of this car that was always there. And when we got there, there was an insurgents meeting in the middle of the intersection and they all ran off and started shooting at us. Um, but that was a notorious bad place the whole time until the 3rd ACR put a combat outpost there. Um, so when the 3rd ACR came in, they started the clear hole build. So they would clear neighborhoods, put in an outpost. And that made a lot of places violent because you were putting your little American Iraqi army footprint in these little violent areas. Yeah. Um, the South West side, I think are those the rodent name streets were a pretty bad area, but a lot of them were just, we just knew of intersections. If you got a call about troops in contact that, a certain intersection. I think Red Trailer was pretty bad. Um, Zinjali, which I can't remember where that neighborhood is. I think it's on the west side. Old Town, just because of the sense it was so tight and compact, if someone thinks of an old, like, European city with small, skinny streets with buildings just on top of each other. Yeah, I always felt bad for the ground guys when they were driving through there. Because I, mean, I remember seeing a guy 
sticking out of the top of a striker with his pistol drawn because that's how close they were to the buildings driving through there. You know, it was like a one lane road essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So there was like uh, one of my times I got engaged was over Saddam. There was actually this sniper. I don't know if this is one of those old wives tale too, but they, I guess the Rangers had enough of this sniper in Saddam. So they went after him. And it was a daytime mission, which was unusual for the Rangers. And we got, yeah, we got shot at. Did you guys um, ever have that sniper shooting at you at the airfield? No, you know, it was weird because you would think the way that airfield's laid out with the hills to the south. Yeah. That you would oh, get more. But yeah, not absolutely more. Did. did you really? Oh, yeah. Um, I remember the first time I heard about them, I was talking to some firemen. I think we were doing some training where they were practicing pulling us out of the aircraft in case something happened. And and the guy had been there several times over the years, and, and he was talking about how they had been shot at one time when they were out smoking a cigarette. And um, sure enough, about a month or so later, uh, I think our crew chiefs were walking around and uh, a bullet pinged off the ground in front of them. Wow. And it got to the point where we would – I to this day, I don't wear a headlamp because we just stopped wearing headlamps doing wow. doing any sort of maintenance um, because there was a sniper. And so one day I was taken off with another guy and we uh, we were kind of taken off to the, to the northwest. So we were kind of crossing the active at an angle. And, um, you know, we're just passing through ETL. We're, we're really low and the dust sort of kicks up on the asphalt and we just kind of flew past it. And both of our heads are just tracking this, where this dust had kicked up because we couldn't register what it was. You know, we were like, what, what just happened? And it sort of dawned on us that it was a bullet and the guy was leading us and he just led us too far. And yeah. uh, no sooner did we come to the conclusion than the radio came alive with one of the checkpoints or something that said that there was gunfire at the north end. So, yeah, he was finding a little spot up there on the uh, on the north end of the runway in those buildings because there were some decent size, you know, three, four story. Oh, yeah. When you just come right off the north there. end. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So he was shooting down into the thing. Um, but, yeah, you, you're right. I mean, the whole airfield was kind of in a bowl and, and surrounded by high ground. So it was uh, surprising that we didn't take more more fire. Yeah, the only ground fire we took was, uh, I remember one night, I think Iraq had won a soccer game, so they did their celebratory fire, and these rounds landed on the airfield. Um, yeah, the only threat we really had was mortars and uh, those Katusha rockets. Most of the time, they really didn't do anything. I know one time they did damage a few Kiowas and a couple Apaches. Um, we had one of our soldiers that get wounded by some rocket shrapnel. One of our contractors had some mortar shrapnel go into his hmm. rear end. Um, but we never really, you know how they just shoot. It's either rockets off a timer or the way they would shoot the mortars would they kind of be somewhere north in Old Town and just do azimuth towards the airfield and they'd either get the direction, you know, the distance right or not. Yeah, because those roads kind of led directly to the airfield. So if you yeah. could line up on the road, you were good. It's hard catching those mortar guys. Yeah, yeah, unless you were up. Um, and I remember we did some missions at night where it was us and the um, – I can't remember what they were called, but they were like contract ISR planes. Odin. Old Cessna Skymaster. Yeah, with yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And we would all take off, and it was like this concerted effort to use the airfield as bait. And they all took off. We all were outside of the city at night and just all sensors were in looking for flashes because we were just waiting for somebody to start mortaring the, the airfield. We did that for a few nights because there was some, I guess, some intel pointing at it or whatever. But, yeah, yeah, you had to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And they were always watching, you know, like like you mentioned before, we would land and 
no sooner you take your helmet off and then you'd hear the boom, you know, and it's like, cause they knew you were down and no one else was up. So they'd start shooting. Yeah. Yeah. We almost caught them several times. I know one time one of the crews took off after a mortar and they caught the guys taking the mortar down on a roof, but the scout weapon team was flying so fast. They, cause they were low and I think they were doing about 90 knots. So when they were able to come back, the guys had left the building or escaped. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so let's talk about your book. Um, I mean, essentially is your book is just covering your time, uh, and your unit's time in, in Missoula. Yeah. So like a little, the background to it is I always wanted to write a book. I used to think I never did anything interesting to write about. Um, about two months into the tour, it was such a violent time. There was so much going on, um, that I decided that this would be a good thing to capture. It was really a story of, uh, a troop, their call sign was thugs, and they were the majority of the troop in Mosul. Um, B troop also flew in Mosul. We would take time in the beginning of the tour to fly B troop pilots in Mosul so they were familiar with it. At some point in November, um, the, the uh, multinational division north did a mission, did a operation in Mosul to prepare it for the replacement with 3rd ACR. So we brought C Troop uh, Scout Weapon Team up. So some C Troop got to fly in Mosul. Um, by the time we got into March, all the resources of Iraq for the U.S. Army were kind of focused on MND North, where we were at. So we doubled up Scout Weapon Team. So we permanently brought over one Scout Weapon Team from Black Death, which took us to 12 helicopters. So um, and then we were given an Apache company from the first combat aviation brigade. So at that point we were able to have double teams up over the city 24 hours a day. So we broke it into the East side and the West side. So one team would just have the East, one team would have the West. And the only team that didn't have a double team was the M4, but we had an Apache attack weapons team that um, did all of Nineveh North. So if we needed them, they could come into the city. Um, So I started, so the story is really about, the squadron and the thugs and the the leadership that that came from that time. Um, just like you being in a lot of great units, I was a proud unit. Had a for the time the probably best combination of leadership I've had the pleasure of being around. And that's from you know squadron level all the way down to your NCOs. The courage and the the bravery of the pilots. Um, think for scout pilots, there's nothing they love more than to help their fellow soldiers on the ground and being in a tin can uh, helicopter, uh, diving in with rockets and 50 cal or shooting M4 out the side just to keep your your buddies on the ground safe. And they did great things over 15 months, put themselves in danger many times without any regard to themselves. So I wanted to tell that story. Um, And there's a lot of stories in there about Agility, the ability to change and uh, adjust to what your enemy's doing or trying to be ahead of the enemy, working with the ground scheme and maneuver to make sure that everyone's in sync to help, you know, defeat the insurgency. So I kind of kept my own notes, had a journal. I told a lot of the pilots I was going to write a book. I put a questionnaire together. Most of them filled it out. Some of them gave me their own journals or parts of their journals. Hmm. Um so, yeah, just over 13 years, it took me a while to put the story together, but it really just kind of two parts. One, to get the story out for those guys and gals that flew in Mosul, and not just the pilots, uh, 
we inherited a great tactical operations center from 117. Um, we moved it, made it bigger. I like to tell NCOs, I wish I was a more mature junior officer because I really would have let NCOs run a talk when I was younger. But the, the NCOs and the enlisted that worked in our operations center were phenomenal. It's probably the best talk I've ever seen. And it had nothing to do with a commissioned officer. It was NCOs. And I'm not talking like just the admin things that young officers think, okay, you just make sure you do the reports in this. They were battle tracking. They were, I even mentioned it in the book, just like 117, the top, um, our radio t- RTOs were like third members of the team um, doing talk-ons, giving them tactical updates, coordinating fires with the ground units. It was just, it was amazing. So it's part of their story. It's maintainer story. Um, unfortunately, it takes combat to stop soldiers from painting rocks because the maintenance was phenomenal. I don't think even as the XO, I ever stressed about having available aircraft. They're always available. Uh, shot up aircraft were turned around quickly. So it was just an amazing story of a team of, you know, enlisted warrant officers, commissioned officers uh, working together in a, a violent time. Uh, I do mention in the book I mentioned earlier, statistically it was the most violent city in Iraq. What was going on is the surge was working in Baghdad and around Baghdad. So a lot of the insurgents were moving north to Mosul. And actually in one of the intelligence reports, the insurgents called Mosul the final battle. So from the time we got there until somewhere around April, is was very violent. And then the, the third ACR was succeeding with their clear hole build. We were getting the cops out there. We got more resources from higher headquarters. Um, and it kind of really tamed the city. So I just wanted to get that story out. Uh, the other piece is for I grew up. Um, I know you did a low level hell podcast. That was one of my favorite books. I, yeah. I got to meet him uh, here at Fort Leavenworth. I told him, I think you might've mentioned the same thing on your podcast, but it's kind of the Bible for cavalrymen, air cavalrymen. Uh, I also, when I was younger, would read a bunch of air cav books. Um, they're all from the same series and the authors escape me right now, but Headhunter. Um, I just wanted to make sure we're getting the same story out from Iraq and Afghanistan to just the American public on what their soldiers do, what Army aviation does, what air cavalry is like in combat. Um, I think, ironically, from the time that I flew Cobras to Kiowa Warriors, cav tactics, the technology may change, but it's the same. We did the same thing in Mosul. Our Vietnam veterans were doing in Vietnam, um, using smoke grenades, using them four out the door, um, flying kind of a similar profile. So yeah, it's just to tell the story. No, it's good. Yeah. It's, uh, it's good that somebody's done that. Cause I mean, that's what Hugh Mills was, was talking to me about and said, you know, you should write a book. And I said, well, I don't, you know, I don't have anything worth writing about. He's like, it doesn't matter. You know, just all this stuff needs to be remembered and, and captured for history and posterity. So so that's good. Where, where can people find your book at? So you can find it on Amazon. Um, if you go to Amazon Books and just look up Thugs and Mosul, um, yeah, you can purchase it there. Okay. All right. We'll be sure to put a link up in the uh, show notes and okay. show description so 
people can find it. So real quick, I mean, that was your first deployment. You you did some other deployments, I'm sure. That was my second deployment. So my first. Oh, that's right, your second. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the first one was with um, the Fifth Corps. I, I right. was one of those weenies that you know in the rear with the gear, but it was very fascinating to watch uh, combat at the core level. Um, I used to laugh because when you're a lieutenant, you complain about battalion. When you're a major, you complain about brigade. So we used to joke up core, like, who do we have to complain to? <laughs> that doesn't really stop. <laughs> but it was fascinating. I got to be in the go, no go brief for the 11th AHR uh, deep attack that, that 20 aircraft got shot up in um, watching a core level synchronize army divisions and joint assets was pretty fascinating. Um, got to listen to the decision over the radio for the thunder runs, which just really neat experiences to be a fly on the wall to hear division commanders talk through decisions that have some kind of historical impact on, you know, the fate of the, the combat that was going on. It was, it was really fascinating. So you've since retired. Do you still fly? I do not. I, uh, I enjoy flying, but I think I enjoy army flying too much. Um, <laughs> if I could just fly in like a training area and do whatever I want, I would probably do it. But yeah, I don't fly. Yeah. Yeah. I was telling somebody that earlier today about, um, you know, once you've, once you've flown overseas, flying anywhere else, just kind of, it's not as fun. You know, there's, there's too many rules, you know, it's like, I want to, I want to fly as fast as I want and whatever altitude I want. Yeah. I, uh, Came back, I did end up doing battalion command at Fort Rucker. I was the battalion commander first at 223rd, which is flight school. I had initial entry rotary wing instruments. I had the fixed wing course, the Chinook courses. We had an MI-17 company that we were building to train hmm. not only our own special ops aviators, but Afghanis, um, Iraqis, whoever wanted to go through the course. And flat iron, but uh, part of the course that I went through the TH-67 instructor pilot course, it was kind of funny because my I had a great instructor pilot, but he was so frustrated with me because he would, you know, I was doing everything like I was in Iraq, you know, right. turn to final, everything was just kind of just to do it the way I want to. <laughs> <laughs> he would tap me on the helmet or he'd tap me, you know, altitude, you know. Yeah. But yeah, yeah you learn. Like, I say you learn bad habits. Compared to you know flying back in the United States on an Army airfield, right? No, that's true. It's it's hard to change your ways once you get comfortable doing doing that kind of flying. But yeah. Well, I want to say thank you for uh, taking the time and and honestly, as a as a fellow uh, Kiowa pilot, thank you for for writing the book and capturing some of that history. And as a fellow veteran of Missoula, definitely uh, thank you for that. So uh, yeah, it's really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me. I really uh, enjoyed talking about my experiences, your experiences, and the book. Well, again, that book is called Thugs of Missoula, and you can find that on Amazon. I'm sure plenty of other places that sell books, so go check that out. I'll try and remember to put a link on the uh, website and in the show notes for that book as well. Thanks a lot for listening. Appreciate you guys uh, supporting the show. Uh, again, big thanks to all the Patreon supporters. Uh, thank you so much for what you do and keeping the show going. And thanks to you all for listening this time, and we'll see you again uh, next month. Hope you have a great Christmas, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Take care. 
credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.